Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is David Nasby, acting moderator of the Town Hall Forum. The theme of the Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspectives. Today's speaker is Harold L. Hodgkinson, demographer, lecturer, and analyst of demographic and educational policy and programs and trends. Harold is the director of the Center for Demographic Policy and fellow of the American Council on Education. Dr. Hodgkinson is widely known as a lecturer and demographic analyst. His major research sponsors include the Carnegie Corporation and Commission, the U.S. Office and Department of Education, Ford, General Mills, Danforth, U.S. West, Cray Research Foundation, and city and state governments. Dr. Hodgkinson has profiled 28 states and many uh, metropolitan areas. Recent studies include all one system, demographics of education, kindergarten through graduate school, higher education, 1990 through 2010, a demographic view, the, the demographics of American Indians, 1% of the population, 50% of the diversity, Immigration to America, the Asian experience. Hispanic Americans, a look back, a look ahead, and bringing tomorrow into focus. He is author of 12 books, three of which have won national awards, and over 200 articles for which he has been honored by the American Education Press Association. Would you please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum Harold Hodgkinson on the topic Changing Cultures in the Twin Cities, Facts and Conclusions. Thank you, David. I would like to add that I'm a Minnesota native, having graduated from St. Louis Park High School in 1949 and graduated from the University of Minnesota in 1953, having a received an extraordinarily good undergraduate education which prepared me for Harvard. The cost of my education at the University of Minnesota was $43 per term, full cost. I am a demographer, which sounds like as much fun as colon surgery when you first hear about it, <clears throat> but it's actually more interesting than that. Uh, demography is destiny to some extent. Our data are non-debatable. If you weren't born, you don't count. I'm going to talk about Minnesota, a brief digression to the world, and then the rest will be talk about the Twin Cities, which are utterly fascinating and quite unique among America's metropolitan areas. Minnesota is the 20th largest state. It grew slower than the American average for the last decade, but it grew. Iowa did not. Iowa hemorrhaged people for 10 years and is still trying to recover. Movers are younger and better educated than stayers, so that what Iowa lost was their best educated young families with children seeking a better job elsewhere. So being 20th is not such a bad place to be in terms of total population, uh, and the fact that you grew slower than the American average may not be such a bad thing over time either. From 95 96, for example, the population went up 43,000, which for a state of 4 million is not very much. If you break that up, it's about 63,000 births. Uh, 38,000 deaths, 6,000 immigrants, and your immigration group is quite unique because of its spread. 
you have Ukrainians and uh, all kinds of Asians now coming to the, the, the state, and that means basically coming to the Twin Cities. And there are 11,600 domestic in-migrants, people from other states who chose to come to Minnesota. Uh, that's 11,000 more moved in than moved out, so that your net is 11,000. 11, if you have a declining net, there's a lot of feeling that there's something wrong with you, and people in the state often get concerned or worried if more people leave than are moving into the state, as has happened to California in large numbers since 1990. In terms of people per square mile, which is another thing that's sort of important. Uh, Japan has a density of 1,000 people per square mile. So does Boswash, where I live, the Boston-Washington corridor. Indeed, New Jersey has a density of 1,200 people per square mile, making New Jersey denser than Japan. Your population density is about 51 people per square mile in 1980, and in 1990 it had gone up to 58. Now, if you compare 58 people per square mile with New Jersey's 1,200, uh, you get a feeling that there's some expansion that you can do without losing your quality of life. Minnesota is very white. Of the 4,500,000 total people in 94 living in the state, uh, there were over 4,200,000 uh, whites. There were 122,000 blacks, 72,000 Hispanics, 100,000 Asians, and 55,000 Native Americans. So the minority population for the state is very small compared to the state's total, and it's heavily concentrated, of course, in the Twin Cities. Uh, the important thing about the future is that white children decline in Minnesota as the percentage of total children. 91% uh, of children now are white in the state, and that goes down to 83% white in Minnesota by 2020. But remember that five years after that, in 2025, half of all American children will be what we today call minority. I doubt if we'll use that term when the minorities are more than half of the population. And in 2050, half of all Americans will be minority, and uh, Minnesota will be maybe 32%. So changes happen here, but they happen more gradually than they do in the rest of the country, and thus you have more time to prepare for them. It's sometimes smart to be the last bear to come out of hibernation in the spring because you can see all the mistakes the other bears have made. Uh, a brief digression to the world, where there are 5.7 billion people on this planet. Uh, that will go to a maximum of 11, 11 billion when the world's population stabilizes in about 2100. But of the 5.7 billion people here today, 17% are white. And that goes to 9% white by 2010. The reason here is not rapidly expanding minority fertility, it's white fertility that's below the replacement level. You need 2.1 children per female to stay even. The current white fertility rate in the world is 1.7 births per female. That does not replace the population. Speaking of ethical issues, one of them is, should white women be encouraged to have more children so that we can keep the population level? I would not touch that with a 50-foot pole. The important thing, however, to begin thinking about is that all over the world, white populations are declining. Our European allies, eight of them, have declining populations now. Even Japan will have a declining population by 2006. Uh, if you look at Italy, you're talking about a nation where the average age is 43. If you compare that with a developing nation where the average age is 19 and say that Italy declares war on a developing nation, you can imagine the army that Italy will field uh, basically geriatric cases like me. 
So the implications of this are military, economic, and particularly political. Uh, every place in the world, white populations are below replacement level except Utah. <clears throat> the average Utah white female is having four children during her lifetime compared to the average white female in the rest of the country of 1.7. Who's making those Mormon women have all those children? No one. They want to. The best prediction of how many children a woman will have is the number of children the woman wants to have. Uh, moving rapidly along. <clears throat> uh, the first time I came to this uh, in vivid terms was in Palm Beach, where I was doing a study last year. The Palm Beach debutante ball was canceled three years ago, not for lack of interest, but for lack of debutantes. The population was so old, with an average age over that of Italy, that it was impossible to produce enough debutantes to keep the ball going year after year. And this you can begin to see then as a problem for a population that does not maintain its numbers. Uh, the growth in elderly in Minnesota is less than in the rest of the country, but Minnesota will have its day. It will come uh, more slowly than most of the rest of the country. We'll have about 24 Floridas by the year 2015. That is, 24 states will have over 20% of their population over 65. That creates mailbox economies because these folks don't generate income through wages. They generate it through stuff that comes through the mailbox. Uh, Social Security checks, uh, Medicare A and B checks, uh, stock and bond dividend checks, and things like that. And it changes the economy because you can't tax that until the older person spends it, which we are seldom willing to do. <clears throat> However, if you think about elderly people in the country, and remember that it isn't just people over 65, if I asked you to write down the name, the number of Americans who are over 100 years of age, I doubt very much if you would write down 46,000, which is the current total of people over 100 years of age in this country. The third quarter of human life is now 50 to 75. Most of us can get through the third quarter without debilitating injuries or diseases. Uh, that's an enormous change, and most of the Social Security issues we're dealing with now come directly from that phenomenon. As we get to Minnesotans themselves, they're very healthy, a very high life expectancy, and life expectancy is the best single indicator of quality of life there is. If you look at people who live a very long time, almost all the other things of, of the good life uh, you will find are also true for theirs. So the Minnesota life expectancy is extraordinarily high, third in the country, although my Minnesota friends tell me it's not that we live longer, it's that it seems longer, and that's another question. The population is very well educated. Only 6% of Minnesotans are high school dropouts. 33% are high school graduates, which is very high. 16% have a bachelor's degree. That figure now in the new data is up to 20. 6% have advanced degrees. There are problems, however, with all this good report. And one of the problems is a large increase in youth poverty, which is related to the fact that one out of four children in Minnesota is being raised by a single mother. These are not evil people. They are working very hard at one or two jobs, but their income levels are so low that the children are almost destined for poverty. And by the way, that works equally for white children, black children, and Hispanic children. If your mother is a single mother, your chance of poverty triples in each of those three demographic groups. So the issue of single motherhood is a great big one for this state. The high school dropout rate is increasing. 
and 39% of three to five-year-olds are not enrolled in nursery or preschool. This is a key developmental stage in terms of what the research tells us, and Minnesota is also very, very high in the percentage of women in the workforce. That means that if 39% of the kids aren't in any kind of service program and their mothers are working, you have a maintenance daycare situation which is not good for anybody, especially the children. There is a very large difference between white and black youth poverty levels in this state. It isn't just that the percentage is high among minority children, it's the fact that it is very low among whites. And if you look at the difference in poverty rate between white and black children, and the data are not yet available for Hispanic and Asian, you see that the largest difference of all the states is in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has the greatest difference between white and black poverty rates, then Louisiana, then Mississippi, and then Minnesota. Now this is not just the number of people in poverty, this is the difference in rate between white and black, as I said. This is an issue that I think needs quite a bit of work. In the Casey Foundation ratings of the quality of life of children, you're 11th, which isn't bad, except that in 1990, Minnesota ranked second on this set of indicators about children's quality of life. It's slipping away, and as far as I can see, there is nothing that is working so far to restore the quality of life of children to its previous level. Jobs in Minnesota are very, very good, especially as the conversion took place between a grain manufacturing and distribution system to a system that's very high in business, professional, computer, and financial services. These are well-paying, upper-middle-class jobs, and this is the core of the success of the state economically in terms of jobs. And of course, stable government employment in St. Paul doesn't hurt anything. If you look at a recession, you'll find that state capitals generally did better than almost anybody else because it's terribly hard, hard to fire government workers. The retail here is very good, and it's now the financial capital of the heartland, uh, seventh in Fortune 500 companies. Minnesota has an amazing ability to do this. I was asked two years ago, how is it that Minnesota has been able to lure so many Fortune 500 companies here? That's the wrong question. That's not how you do it. You do it by growing them here. You grow your own. Most of the Fortune 500 companies in Minnesota started as small Minnesota companies. But this state is so efficient at delivering services to businesses that the state has helped those places become very high-quality Fortune 500 companies. And to my mind, it's very important to understand how you do that. If you can put it in a bottle and save it, uh, the future of Minnesota will be assured. I've talked to a number of business leaders in the state who don't know how you do it. So it would be important to find out how you make as many Fortune 500 companies as you do. There are two workforces in this state as there are in every other. Uh, for every new job for a computer programmer in Minnesota, you created seven new jobs for janitors, which is the national average. Talk in the newspapers and the television is mostly about the high-tech workforce that requires college graduates, which is one quarter of the workers in the United States. We never talk much about where the largest number of new jobs is, and that, of course, is retail sales, clerks and cashiers, janitors, waiters and waitresses, truck drivers, nurses, the only one in the top six that requires a college degree, and fast food preparation. Those are the heavy hitters in terms of new jobs. Most of them are jobs held by women, immigrants, and minorities, and many of them are single mothers. So you can see the, the ankle bone is connected to the toe bone in terms of how a lot of these things go. Uh, Health technology is the fastest growing area of jobs in Minnesota in a percentage sense, but it's a very small number of new jobs uh, itself. 
you are the sixth best place to live, Minneapolis-St. Paul, of all of 351 metros. You're 249th in the cost of living, which is very expensive. Number one is best and 351 is worst. Uh, on the other hand, you pay a lot of taxes and you get magnificent services. If you compare the services in Minnesota for your tax dollars compared to almost any other state, I don't think you'd want to move. Transportation here is 14th. That's air, water, road, and rail, an excellent system that is getting better, if anything. Sixth in jobs, which is not only the number of jobs, but their quality and the ability to get them. Uh, and to my mind, that's... Uh, Surprising, I didn't think the, the metro would rank quite that high. 23rd in education, which is kindergarten through graduate school. 337th in climate, which as a native I, <laughs> as a native I consider that a charitable uh, judgment. <clears throat> that the, the idea that there are 14 metropolitan areas with a worse climate has never occurred to me, but it apparently is true. Crime is 114th, almost in the middle, and that was a surprise, and crime is heavily located in the Twin Cities and not within the area. Like Washington, D.C., there are 10 blocks in Washington where I live where a vast majority of violent crimes are committed. So the idea that this is spread evenly across the metropolitan area is not supported by the facts. Anyway, that's a very high figure for me. Uh, on the arts, 13th of 351 metropolitan areas, that's pretty good. 21st in healthcare. There are enough general practitioners here to provide excellent medicine for everybody. In Boston, there are so many specialists that there aren't any people who will work directly with families. Indeed, some of them even don't even work directly with patients. <clears throat> Recreation, you're 12th. Uh, even in the wintertime, there are legal things to do in Minnesota. <laughs> Most large cities are one-third of their metropolitan areas. Hartford is a fifth because Hartford is surrounded by small New England towns and the city of Hartford cannot expand, so it's basically hemmed in. When we get to the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro, uh, it's interesting that St. Paul is one-tenth of its part of the metropolitan area and Minnesota and Minneapolis is one-seventh of its. These are very small cities in very large metro areas, which gives a lot of political and economic clout to the suburbs because that's where the votes are, that's where the new jobs are likely to be created, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to realize that these are tiny cities in very large, this is the 13th largest metropolitan area in the United States. So you have very small cities in very large metropolitan areas. And this is important because the cities are declining as the metro area expands. And that, of course, is typical of the eastern half of the country. Phoenix, which has been annexed 26 times, uh, simply grows the city as it grows the metropolitan area. You can't do that in Hartford because the city is not allowed to grow. There is no annexation possible. There are basically four rings of every metropolitan area that serve four functions. The first is the inner city, which was there before World War II, which is where, when I was growing up, you had to go for culture, restaurants, concerts, virtually anything of that sort. Churches were heavily involved. Educational institutions were, too. That was the city. After World War II, we rewarded the veterans with an almost free house under FHA and a free college education under the GI Bill, and we created for them a new set of residence areas called suburbs, which are regionally around the city. Uh, and in those places, the World War II heroes settled down and raised the baby boom. The baby boom, as we all knew at the time, would rule not just America, but the world. It was very clear that America won World War II. I don't think we understand today just how much we knew at the time that it was America's victory. We, uh, without us, clearly, the war would not have been won. 
The baby boom is now in ring three, raising its own children so that demand for youth-oriented services has moved way out of the St. Louis Park Band and moved out almost to Anoka, where you now find rapidly increasing populations of young people. Outside of that is ring four, which is where farmland is being sold by farmers to real estate speculators, and the last wave of suburbs will be created out there. So these four rings are pretty much the same uh, wherever you go. As we begin to think about the Minneapolis-St. Paul area itself, it's important to realize that almost every housing unit has somebody living in it. That may sound not, not terribly unusual to you, but in the city of Philadelphia, there are 17,000 vacant housing units in the city. If a house is vacant and a window is shattered and it's not replaced with glass, but maybe plywood or cardboard, it is like a swimmer swimming among sharks that house becomes very vulnerable, and in a very short time, all kinds of bad things are going to happen. Uh, so the housing is good, but it's old, especially in Ring 1, where the housing is beginning to deteriorate now, and in Ring 2, where you see uh, a lot of housing that was built for those vets that's still around. Very few minority middle class uh, people in the Twin Cities area, and that is a problem. The city of Minneapolis has 360,000 people, 288,000 whites, 47,000 blacks. But if you go to Minnetonka City, the Ring 3 suburb, 46,000 whites and 443 blacks. In St. Louis Park, 41,000 whites and 826 blacks. So the ability of minorities to move to the suburbs is severely curtailed, not so much by racial prejudice, but by economic segregation. As you begin to think about poverty, 18.5% uh, of Minneapolis city residents were poor, 16% of St. Paul residents were poor, 2% of Minnetonka residents were poor, and 5% of St. Louis Park residents were. As a close-in suburb, St. Louis Park is beginning to pick up poverty and low education levels from the city, and that's true nationally. If you look for eligibility for free and reduced price lunch, that's much higher in the first ring of suburbs now than it is in core cities itself. So the problems of cities move to the closest suburbs. Asians seem to be able to be suburbanized more rapidly than any other minority group in this uh, metro. Minorities are equally split between black, Asian, Hispanic, and Native Americans, which means that no minority group can achieve critical mass and economic and political clout. Almost nobody does things for, quote, minorities, unquote. They do things for Asians, they do things for Native Americans, but they don't do things for minorities as a group. And because there's no political clout possible with these small numbers, it's quite easy, quite easy to ignore the minority communities because you very seldom see them. The old comment, out of sight, out of mind, is very appropriate for the minority populations in the Twin Cities. We're now moving to a global society in some dimensions. If you think of acid rain, uh, CFCs, the stock market consequences of Asian difficulties and so forth, which means that young people need to be familiar with people from other nations and cultures to ensure success for themselves in their state. Most of Minnesota is devoid of the cultural richness that this metropolitan area has in comparative ad abundance. Uh, additionally, in the nation, 20% of black households have an income that's higher than the white average. That is clearly not the case in Minnesota, but could become so. Minnesotans, I believe, are not more prejudiced than others. They just have fewer sightings of minorities. You can go through weeks in Minneapolis or St. Paul without having significant contact with minority populations. So 
So as you think about the future, Minnesota's reputation as a progressive, organized, and caring state does not exist in perpetuity. It has to be re-earned. And the fact is that the metro area is now slipping behind on a number of important social issues involving children, your future population. This has to do with youth poverty, with more uh, people with low education levels moving into the area, and uh, the fact that the diversity is so much greater than black-white. Uh, that we just have got to begin rethinking what that means, I think, for almost any area. My feeling is, however, that the Twin Cities are in such good shape now, financially and in other ways, that you don't have to make up as much loss as the average metropolitan area does. Also, the city populations, as we have already seen, remain very, very white. And uh, to the degree that whites are able to have the choice of moving to Lake Minnetonka it seems to me that there are many black households that have equivalent income but do not now have that choice. And to my mind, that is an ethical issue, too. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hodgkinson, for your contribution to this uh, important discussion as we come to grips with the changes uh, surrounding our community. At this point, we will take a pause, and uh, those of you who must leave uh, may do so at this time, and, uh, and the rest of you, if you will fill out a, one of these yellow cards and pass it to the aisles, the uh, ushers will collect them and send them down to be sorted. We'll take a pause at this point. To get us uh, started, I'll, uh, we had the opportunity to uh, have a conversation with Dr. Hodgkinson last night, and, and uh, one of your references, Bud, was uh, to the uh, rigidity of the, uh, of the core city, the, 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 the core of the, the Minneapolis and St. Paul communities. But uh, you indicated that you're optimistic uh, that this uh, community deals with many difficult issues, but you think that the rigidity in community boundaries is a problem. To many of us, these boundaries seem to be practically and politically permanent. Um, how do you see the, the, this problem playing out, changing this, what you call the, the rigid core, and uh, developing some flexibility? Uh, the core is rigid only in the sense that people are segregated economically, and I would argue that economic segregation is far more rigid than racial segregation, but that they go together uh, to a rather high degree, as we've pointed out, the, po the poverty rates for various minorities, and the minorities are in the, the cities too. Uh, in some cases, it may require a reorientation of school districts. Uh, it may require a different political cut. I would offer for your uh, interest 
the Louisville Public Schools, which resigned 10 years ago and became the Jefferson County Public Schools. Jefferson County includes the city of Louisville plus all of the very expensive suburbs of Louisville itself in one school district. Thus, magnets were established in downtown Louisville schools, and if you wanted the best science instruction, even if you're in a wealthy suburb, your kids had to go downtown. That's worked in a remarkable way uh, to change the rigidity of the walls around the city of Louisville, and uh, the fact that Minnesota is now in free choice in so many different modes, if you can manipulate that, it may create some of these same issues. My concern is child care and some of the other things which are also not as effectively done within the limits of the city as they are in, the, in these suburbs, <clears throat> and I have no easy solution for that. That's a difficult problem. Uh, in your work, as you did the analysis, and I know you've uh, alluded to several of these things, but maybe as a summary, the question here is, what did you learn about the Twin Cities that should encourage us, and what did you learn that should worry us? Well, you should be very encouraged by the fact that you came out sixth among 351 metropolitan areas on a, on a very comprehensive assessment as, as uh, the place to go. And I know you think that weather is a terrible uh, reducer of people coming here. My feeling is that weather is a wonderful filter. It filters out the lazy, the unambitious, <laughs> and, and the non-religious, if I may say so. <laughs> so the other thing is that, that these cities are virtually undamaged. That is, if you look at the quality of the stock uh, transportation, housing, all those things, the, the, uh, the megastructure, the infrastructure, it's in very good shape. So to that extent, you don't have to rebuild the city at all. The problem with Atlanta is trying to rebuild the area from the Carter Center to downtown. That is an extraordinary set of tasks, which the Atlanta leadership hoped that the Olympics would do, along with generous support from Coca-Cola, but it clearly didn't do that. So I think you should be very optimistic about the fact that the cities are not in disrepair. Flint, Michigan is as close to clinical death as you can find in the United States. The difference between this metropolitan area and Flint is as night and day. Uh, so to that extent, uh, the problems here, I think, can be solved in 10 years. I think if you put your mind to it, with the tradition of the Metro Council, which gets you into thinking about regions and not just little tiny chunks, uh, that tradition of thinking may probably, well, I'm quite optimistic that you'll solve these problems too. What should worry us? What should worry you is the fact that uh, the problems that are most important in the lives of children are problems that are invisible to the average Minneapolitan. I think it's the fact that these are invisible uh, to a large extent. It doesn't affect your lives daily. Uh, living in Washington, D.C., I can't get on a metro train without being on the train with at least 30% of the car ridership who is not white. So every minute of my day, I spend in potential interaction with people who are not of my own background. And it's not just white, it's a, it's a cultural issue as well. So I think the, the biggest issue is that this is an invisible problem and that it's not clear to any person in terms of the impact on their own lives what this problem uh, really means. And the fact is that the poverty rate is increasing in the uh, kids in the Twin City area and in the state more rapidly than the national average. It's clear that high school dropout rates are going up. 
And that issue of single parent families is one that is really going to be very tough for the state to try to deal with. What areas, the questioner says, what areas of the country are having success with children of single mothers, and what are they doing differently? There are almost no regions of the country in which you can find that uh, <clears throat> mothers are being assisted in getting good jobs and that the daycare is of a very high quality. I am struck every time I go to Europe with the fact that daycare is in the national interest, and thus the national government uh, directs, mandates very high quality daycare every place in France. You will have some of